Good afternoon. Welcome to Tom's World Language Cafe, an Apple podcast coming to you live from Fishers, Indiana. It's Tuesday, August 25th, 1.18 p.m., a beautiful sunny day, summer, summer day, sunny and hot and humid, 92 degrees out there. And we've got a lot of fun today because we have a live wire teacher, a dynamic teacher who has retired uh, this past um, uh, spring, retired after a, a fabulous teaching career. And we're going to talk to Luisa Legrado, Spanish teacher, um, a number one, numero uno, I should say, right? And uh, just a great, great teacher. And we're happy to have her on our show. Delighted that she took time to be here. And she's going to tell us a little bit today about some of the highlights of her teaching career. Good afternoon, Luisa. How are you? I'm great, Tom. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to talk and share my experiences. Okay. And I'm sure the listeners will be happy to listen to a lot of the things, too, because we're going to talk about a lot of different things here. And so, everybody, don't forget to subscribe to this program. You can subscribe. And every time there's a broadcast, you get it via your email, uh, and it comes out. Uh, we usually do one a month, usually, maybe two sometimes. And um, for you people who are new to this, and we've been doing the programs for some nine or ten years now. Um, Luisa, tell us, the, the listeners, a little bit about your early life up to your later life, and then... <laughs> Uh, and tell them about this other Spanish teacher that you know very well in your family. Sure. Well, I'm actually, I, I was born on the East Coast in Massachusetts, but I, my family has moved around quite a bit. And I would say a big impact on uh, my career as a teacher probably happened in Ohio. So I lived in Shaker Heights, went to um, school there uh, for junior high and high school, graduated in 1979. Um, I'm the only one in my family that speaks Spanish. I am not a native speaker at all, um, and uh, my Spanish teacher that I had at the time who impressed the heck out of me about why this language is so wonderful, and for me, he he guided me towards IU as a place to go for my college um, education. So um, basically, what was I his also, name? His, the teacher's name was Antonio Otero. Antonio, I know. Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. and immigrated to Cleveland with his family, and um, he taught many, many years. Um, I knew him probably when he was at the peak of his career. He was very involved um, as a, um, a education association um, leader in the building, and just a, he was one of the few that truly took the advanced placement program in Spanish to heights that they hadn't reached before. And, um, and because he was the real deal, anybody who had him in class truly, truly had a wonderful experience. So, and, um, but, but that connection of being able mm -hmm. to, um, have a teacher help me, um, develop my skill sets, especially my speaking and listening, um, was, was tremendous because I was, I'm very comfortable calling myself a true gringa, but I feel like with his, um, um, guidance, I, I got to a place where I could be post gringa. And then the listeners out there, you listeners, uh, you teachers out there listening, uh, you very well are doing the same thing that Antonio, uh, the Spanish teacher of Luisa's, uh, did many years ago. You're motivating teachers that people that someday will be teachers, as Luisa did with a lot of her uh, students who became teachers. Uh, you are doing the same thing out there. So don't remember how important your job is. You're, you're the person who gets people motivated to continue in education, which is a big, big deal. Um, what about college? So you went to college and then you met somebody in college, right? 
<laughs> I met another Antonio. Another Antonio. <laughs> <In Bloomington. laughs> yeah. yeah uh, so, well, in my in my quest to become as good as I could be as a Spanish speaker, I um, signed up to live in one of the uh, single housing uh, dormitory systems where were called the language houses. So I stayed in the Spanish house uh, my freshman and sophomore and part of my senior year. Um, and there I met uh, my current husband and only husband, Tony Legrado, and he was a couple years ahead of me um, at IU and also a Spanish major and a comparative literature major. And so just with his modeling of how excellent he spoke the language, his experiences, and not we spoke the same Mexico, um, we became very, very good friends. And after I did my junior year abroad in Madrid, um, we came back, I came back, excuse me, and he was already out of college, but in teaching um, on the West Side at um, Ritter, Cardinal Ritter High School, a Catholic uh, school. And at that time, he realized how much the experience of living in Madrid, Spain for a year impacted my life. He wished to do the same. So he um, went to Madrid after one year of teaching, and I uh, decided to go back to Madrid as well. So that's when we really got strong as a, as a friend, a friendship, a couple, and um, decided, you know, that probably we're meant for each other. <laughs> so truly, truly, as we talk about teachers and inspiring other people to become teachers, I have to say um, both the Antonios inspired me because of loving the language and the literature that comes from that and the culture. That was more important first. And to be it, super confident in what you can do. In and you had some great teachers at IU. Who were your two or three Absolutely. best? Best oh, professors. You had some really good ones. I remember. I did the classics like Dan Quilter, uh, Marilyn Beater, um, also uh, Pep Sobre. And I mentioned these are very different kinds of professors because of their specialties, but also by the way they engage their uh, students into real involvement and participation in class. Uh, Miguel Enguinos, I had him right before I went to Madrid, and he was a required course for any student who was going to be traveling overseas. And I, and I reme- remember well that you are on our, our teacher program uh, in San Luis Potosí with Russ Salmon, and you, exactly. there you got to meet Russ, who is another Definitely. great teacher at Indiana and, and, University. Um, and, that, and that idea of the professors uh, helping teachers after they've graduated, wanting to make the best of the best, um, out of our experiences. And for many of us who, who are not native speakers of the language, it was super important for me to keep revitalizing my skill set because even though I'm teaching it, there's so much out there and so much culture and you've got more than 21 nations that speak Spanish officially, you, you're just not going to know it all. And at least you can do your part to um, align yourself with great programs. I like, I like what you just said about you just won't know it all because that's very important for uh, teachers out there. Sometimes you get frustrated teaching and uh, you think, well, I don't know a lot about these countries, but little by little over the years, as Louisa did and I did myself too, teaching, you learn about these countries little by little, and finally you get fairly well versed in, in the culture of the countries. But uh, the important issue is don't give up, and you just have to keep going on and, and being positive about everything and, and learning about these the culture of the countries. And the culture, as Louisa is going to tell you here in a second, I'm going to ask her this question. Uh, Louisa, why is culture so important in language teaching? Well, it's so important because it's the context. It's the context and the reason for speaking the language. If you don't have a very obvious reason for wanting to use the language and the culture is the most logical, it's the, it's the humanity 
behind the language. And if you don't share that humanity and talk about the way people behave differently from your own personal culture, and I guess we could also talk about the big C and the little C of culture, but I'm going to talk about it all in one. The idea is the, <clears throat> the language means nothing if you can't relate it to people. And if the people are certainly not the ones I'm looking at in the classroom, and maybe they are more today than they were 20 years ago, you have to talk culture. They have to, students need a context. They need a reason why they should learn this language. And even if they never go to other countries, in my case, I was very fortunate that Spanish has become such a predominant language in the United States. And, and even when kids find out we don't even have an official national language, we have multiple languages and it should stay that way because the language represents people and people are why we study, why we want to know more. And so I think when the students, whether I have them in fourth grade or in 12th grade, um, and no matter what their ability to be able to do something well with the language, they understood that I was going to show them what you do with this language and who you're doing it with. So um, in the then the middle years and later years, so you started out, uh, I believe you started out, one of your big uh, entries was in Monrovia, right? Correct, yes. So, Monrovia, where you did elementary and middle school, right? I did elementary. And high school. And high school. I did it all. Well, Louisa did everything there. It was, I recall those years. Louisa was, was, was really, really strong. I mean, she did great and came out fine, but it was a big assignment for her. And then she went to, um, was it West Lane next? West Lane, yeah. West Lane came, was my next major assignment. After I decided to leave Monrovia in 1994, I spent four full years there with them. But there was some instability with just an added towards um, where the world languages really had a place. And I, and I just had a difficult time um, talking to people who couldn't be open-minded to the fact that world languages definitely has a place in, in one child's education. So when that decision and a couple of other people like the superintendent and the principal of that district also left the same year I left, um, it was time to move on and be greater challenge and find a community of teachers world language teachers that could really help me grow in further. And you know, you know, and to be honest, we got to share, uh, Tom, too, you were instrumental during the second year I was at Monrovia because you helped me get a part-time job at Ben Davis so I could you know, make my, my uh, contract full-time, at least for one semester. Um, so having that opportunity uh, to teach all level one classes at Ben Davis definitely prepared for me that I could do this in another district inside Marion County, mm -hmm. and, and especially in, in Indianapolis. And that's where I really yes, wanted to be. Good. Now, here, here's a, another question then. So uh, you're at Westlane. Now, can you tell the listeners, I know you did a great job at Westlane. I got to see you one, once over there teach, maybe a couple <laughs> times I was there, with Guero Loco, the, uh -huh. the, the rapper uh, that uh, we both know, the Spanish rapper. And uh, at any rate... Uh, I remember how well you did, and I was just boggling my mind about how many students you had in the day. But I mean, it was a lot of people. And, uh, it was. A lot of different people and a tough situation at times. So you stayed there quite a while, and then you got this yes, award. Can, can, can you tell everybody that beautiful award that you got? Yes. Well, but there were there were several accolades that later brought me to a place I never thought I ever. You don't go into teaching to get this one award that we're referring to. Um, in the uh, process of be able being able to convince my own administration 
that world languages needed to get out of the exploratory attitude and something more concrete and more doable where kids actually could perform in the language from the very beginning. Um, I started working very hard, probably five or six years into my career at Westlane, that this had to have a different attitude if we're going to prepare them to be better language learners when they get to high school as well. And so um, some of the things I did to get the kids connected with the culture, it was also just doing the academic contest, the Joe Mason Day. So I tried to show students that we could do things with Spanish outside the classroom and let them know what the community how many of, How many of those did you win? You won a lot of those. Uh, yeah. I think 10. 10, ten <laughs> of them. I, had, I was following the shoes of Bob Degatari, who also who uh-huh. got replaced in 1994, and she had done very well mm-hmm. with the kids, too. In fact, she, I think, was doing it from the very beginning when Joe Mason Day. Uh, she did do that one. Yeah, she did when it started. She well, actually with that did. inspiration and all those trophies that we had in the room, um, the kids kept asking. I said, yeah, we can do this. And so within the first year, we formed our first team and, mm-hmm. uh, and did and our the, first event. So you, you got the, um, trying to remember this, you got the Spanish Teacher of the Year at at right. uh, at um, IFLTA, no, ATSP. Yeah. ATSP, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Then you got exactly. then you got the IFLTA award, right? Right. And then you Either. got the the Indiana Teacher of the Year <laughs> for the state for all disciplines, which is yeah. there's only been two teachers in language that did that. Uh, uh, Bernie Barcio, a Latin teacher, and then uh, Louisa. And all the years that the award's been out, the, the only two people in languages have ever done that it was an incredible accomplishment. And and North Central got it in 2014, Steve Perkins, also a Latin teacher. Okay, and he got it so in 2014. Well, there's yeah. been three people then, right? Three people, Okay. Yeah. So okay. I think the, yeah, and, and thank you for for mentioning it, Tom. The, yes. the 2006 Indiana Teacher of the Year um, experience definitely changed my life. It allowed me to go from just working very, very hard at the district level, at the state level, but then I, get, I was given a new platform, a new place to speak and talk about world language education as a whole. And, um, and a lot of good things were going on in 2006 um, to be able to speak that. I believe the year before 2005 was considered um, a world language education time of the year for everyone to be focusing on better ways that we can do um, our instruction and promotion of language learning and understanding that our diversity was ever growing anyway in this country. And it was about time that we accepted these other languages as part of how we accept people. Now, so um, I was on sabbatical that major year in 2006 mm-hmm. to th- 2007. Okay. So I was out of the classroom for a year. And that opportunity gave me opportunity to work with two other women who were in charge of international education, Kathy Blitzer and um, at, at Adriana Melnick, who was mm-hmm. our consultant for world language uh, instruction in the state of Indiana when we used to have consultants in our content areas. And it was fantastic. We did the state standards and we devised a new way of looking at standards for world language instruction with three different entry points, depending on what kind of a school you were teaching in. So if you if you were doing immersion programs, you could start with kindergarten or first grade. If you also included uh, middle school, you could start in sixth grade. And if you only had a world language program for high school, you could start in ninth grade. Mm-hmm. And we modeled them after the ELA, the English Language Arts Program, so you could see how language is processed, whether it's English or another language. So it was tremendous. That second semester I was at the DOE uh, was amazing how much I grew. But I was also missing the classroom and knew I was meant to be back. Can you share with the listeners your meeting with President Bush and and his wife? Oh, (laughs) sure. 
his <laughs> wife, Barbara. It was a, no, not Barbara. What was her name? Yeah. Was that uh, 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 Laura. Laura? Laura. Laura Bush. Yeah. 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 yeah you're thinking of the other Bush. Thinking of the other Bush. Yeah. <laughs> well, as part of the um, the year of ceremony that you're celebrated in in April, which is typically the time we celebrate uh, teachers or the beginning of May. Um, but in that particular year, in 2006, we were all invited, all the state teachers of the year, to Washington, D.C. for a number of um, meetings and PD time for many things to get the national look on education. But we had a beautiful ceremony in the Rose Garden. But before we got to the Rose Garden, we were all asked to meet the president and his wife in the Oval Office. So um, when every um, teacher was being presented to uh, President Bush and his wife, uh, Laura Bush, they would let them know what that teacher taught and what state they were coming from. So when I came to shake hands with President Bush, he and his wife spoke to me in Spanish. <laughs> I was just blown away, like, oh, this is too good. And good Spanish. I mean, I have to tell you, that, that was just the most pleasant surprise of being able to be acknowledged for what I do and speak to me in Spanish. Cool. Yes, and... Uh... So then your later years, uh, after West Lane, you went to the high school, right? I did, yes. I, um, we had a lot of stuff going on, very positive um, professional development, I would call it, at the grand scale of turning our district into an international baccalaureate um, by design. And so we had a, a primary years program and a limited years program. We already had at North Central the diploma program for going on 30 years now, one of the longest programs uh, in Indiana for sure. And Was that the I, IB thing? The IB. Yeah, okay. And the, the um, there was a big need for pushing more of the principles of how you teach an NYP program in ninth grade and 10th grade, which wasn't getting done. So I, I saw an opportunity to go and do that and support teachers that were teaching um, anything that was considered level one, level two, or level three, because that would encompass our ninth graders and 10th graders, in, for sure. So I um, spent four years at North Central doing my very best to share all the training that I had received at Westlane. The middle schools were fabulous at the way they approached the IB method of inquiry learning. And, um, and having that experience and being a team leader on our um, PLCs that we met with every single week, um, that training gave me some great confidence that I could do so, some more work at the high school. So, well, so yes. which, which level did you find the most creative that you probably learned the most about teaching? Was it the middle school or the high school? Wow. Well, I would have to say the middle school because you have less to work from. There are not as many strong, strong programs or advocates or even teachers who probably have spent as many years in world language instruction that's not exploratory, but the authentic deal. And so when you're, when you're trying to be creative, you become creative out of necessity. And so for me, it was about trying to work with the adolescence that's just growing in every child who's in sixth, seventh, eighth grade. So you have that emotional side of them and how you're going to connect language that makes them stay connected with you. And, um, and then also the academic side, helping them to be prepared for high school. And so rigor and your relationships and your relevancy to your content area with the kids was what I did my three R's on. And, and the creativity, I think, came from that. I was very happy with the high school instruction because I also had the creativity to work with students who were non-readers 
had low morale when it came to going to school every day. So those were my first and second year classes that I taught. And then, of course, I was given honors classes, and I appreciated that very much. So I wasn't always teaching level <laughs> one. <laughs> and the creativity um, uh, also bursted its uh, uh, opportunities for me when we came to looking at how can I maximize the most opportunity through reading, uh, speaking, presentations um, with my third-year honor students and getting them ready for an AP um, program that was coming. I've, I've often thought sometimes that the reason that at the middle school level there's a lot of things going on that are really good about language for language learners. And one of them, I think, is that, that we tend to take more time with whatever we're doing, the vocab, the grammar, the stories, whatever it is, and I don't think that mm -hmm. uh, the syllabus, uh, the, the syllabi at that level is, is rigorous once you get to high school and even more, so in, even more so in college. But it's almost yeah. like sometimes we get in these classes and when you get with the whatever syllabus, high school or co college or middle school <clears throat> or, or, or lesson or, or um, structure learning, that we hurry too much, and then we end up yeah. hurrying. We lose students maybe who would have been interested, but we hurry to cover the material. And sometimes the, the middle school, we cover it for high school, and then high school covers it for college, making sure everybody's prepared. And in doing all that, sometimes I think we miss the boat maybe that we need to slow down, you know, and let the kids absorb language and, and, and experience real language learning and situational uh, concepts, etc., and not just um, uh, be driven so much maybe by covering material. And I, 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 I don't know how you feel about that, but I, I, how do you feel about that? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And I'll tell you, that is the biggest difference as um, a language teacher finds him or herself. When you're in a high school, you're trapped by what people believe is the way to guide um, your pacing guides, a textbook, versus real units of study that connect learning to the world. And to me, uh, once I could convince my colleagues around me that we can make unit lesson plans based on real, real world concerns about how we identify ourselves in the world, how we identify ourselves in the local community, um, then we're going to be making better lessons for kids to um, well, appreciate yeah. and understand. In the same way with the culture, you know, we get, we, we get textbooks where we have one paragraph or maybe a, a page on España. Then the next, right. there's the next chapter is a page on Mexico or Colombia or Ecuador. And it's ridiculous that we can't spend more time penetrating right. culture too with language. Yeah. And yeah. may, maybe that in the future that happens someday. But I think when it does, we'll have a lot more, we'll have more uh, prolific speakers of languages when that happens. And, and yes. you know, that type of thing. Um, so why did you go into teaching in the first place? What, was, what were three of well, your big reasons to teach? I, I, I'm one of four children. So um, my youngest sister will tell you that I was a teacher since I was probably eight. 
because <laughs> I would always teach my little sister what I was learning in school, and she loved school, and she was an avid reader, and and you know, and I just liked the nature of school, but I didn't really consider a career until after I was um, living in Madrid the first year and wanting to make some extra cash and was tutoring on the side, and there were um, a number of private institutes looking for college students or graduates um, from American universities to teach English um, to Spaniards. So those were my first real-time experiences right there in the, I understood language because I studied it at IU and I studied it in high school. So um, I did the same thing. I let those kids learn English through my American experience and wanting to hear my American accent because they most of the time were getting British teachers and um, they saw more commerce and business trades mm -hmm. happening in Madrid that were coming from the United States and the, their own um employees couldn't understand the English. And so there were some big pushes to getting American teachers um, to promote that American accent. So I had good success that I got along with the teachers. Many of the students rather, excuse me, were adults or are graduating teenagers coming out of their co-program and getting ready for um, their preparation for college. And there was just a, a connection there. And I really liked it because then it made me think more about language all the time because I was living in Madrid and having to speak Spanish all day long. And I started thinking I had a lot of ability to be able to see what do kids really or young adults really need to know about English and giving them better understanding of how that works. And also, if they truly didn't understand the explanations, I could tell them in Spanish and then go back into English. But so that, that was that really helped, right? To get, yes. Oh, was, yeah. It helped me as much yes, as it helped them. Yes. So that personal relationship with the students, definitely, right. I got a, a buzz off of that for sure. It was, it made those days just fun. I looked forward yes. to the days I went to yes. go teach English. So when I came right. back, um, I, I did not plan to come out of, with a degree in, in instruction and education as an undergrad. So I just finished my studies in um, Spanish in telecommunications as a minor. And then uh, I, I left it at that. And then I came back to Spain and taught more English as a foreign language. And I was also a governess while I was there the second year and took care of a family. And this family had some titles in it so there was a duquesa uh, in the family and i talk about world life experience so you got a that. lot of practice with I, that yeah. that's good so, um, so now cool. let's go to community involvement here so i know yeah. you did a lot of things with the kids what were your two or three top things that you always loved to do well, with the kids in the community whether it's just stretching students mind the community of other kids studying spanish and loving it, I thought was important for kids to see, not just in their own school. So anytime we had opportunities to meet with other kids from other schools, whether we were doing something with IPS, um, we went to the Colts uh, football camp that my, one of my former principals helped me get together, and they were celebrating, um, it was right around uh, the time when we do our Hispanic um, Culture Month uh, in the middle of September to the middle of, of um, October. And so we brought the kids over there and they got to meet all these other kids, many of them who were, were uh, Latino, and they got to use their Spanish while they were looking at American football. Just funny things, but it was connecting the real community. And these kids were so excited getting on the buses and, and going over to the west side to check out the, the football camp and meet some of the players. And, um, and they had all kinds of banners put in Spanish. I was very impressed with something like that. So just getting kids who don't get a chance to do those things on their own. Uh, we did a service day project with my eighth graders. And we aligned this with the uh, English um, 
uh, department and their classes that were studying uh, Les Miserables. And so we brought our Spanish students and uh, top English students in this particular environment, got parent involvement and other teachers to and also host. And we would go around the city of Indianapolis and clean up the city, serve the uh, Hispanic American Center at the time, uh, answer phones, um, paint gymnasiums. Yeah. And I, I, I remember a couple things you did. I, I, maybe you did one or two. I can't remember. But you uh, helped uh, helped uh, participate. You participated in uh, that um, distance learning project I had. Was it the Quixote? Yes. Quixote? Was it? Uh, we did. Uh, no, it was the, the Boda. The, 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 the Boda. La Boda. And that's where everybody got, <laughs> it, got together and did a Boda. That was great. And uh, you got your kids involved in that. I know you did a great job. I think you got a bunch of te- the teachers, students got a lot of awards for that. Your your students for how well they did. I remember that. Louisa, what about um, these uh, teaching strategies, techniques? What were your top all time top fun things to do with the kids that you really enjoyed? And well, I know singing was one of them, right? Definitely. (laughs) Okay. Well, for me, any teaching strategy that encouraged kids to talk and participate is what I wanted. And and when you're making a great teaching strategy work in your classroom, especially when it's a world language classroom, and the whole idea is to get them to practice the productive skills, whether it's going to be speaking or writing, um, they have to first have a sense of your environment in your classroom. So my first teaching strategy is always about um, the classroom management plan. That's about making them active learners from the very beginning. So um, I was always a fun reader of Harry Wong, um, First Days of School. I used that to survive my first year as a a middle school teacher because I really needed to have that classroom. He was really Um, important in the day. Wasn't he? he was oh, an he incredibly was, he, creative uh, person. Night, yes. Super duper, and his daughter as yes. well, both coming out of California. The the learning that, and I adapted their elementary program, a book, because that book was really designed for elementary um, teachers, but made it work in middle school and also made it work in high school. I wish I had known about him when I first started in 1990, because it would have changed the way I would have done some things. But, I, you know, you learn from the experience. And this was probably the most important thing that I did many, many uh, presentations on at IFLTA in essential states was just how the classroom management becomes the new classroom community. So that teaching strategy for me, I'll talk to my grave, you got to do because you got to, you got to get the kids to trust you. They have to know your boss, but that they can also be experts as well. Um, and without being a mini boss, but learning that students can play roles in your classroom as experts, whether they're going to do warm up questions, whether they're going to do announcements. And I learned a lot of this from you, Tom, you probably didn't even know you were doing this, but this was what made sense to me because from the very beginning of class, while you were taking attendance or had someone else doing it, you had other student leaders up there talking. And when I watched that, I thought, that's what I want my students to be able to do too, and to do it with comfort and not that, just in an honors class, yeah, but in the lowest. That, yes. And that, and that's so important today. And I'm afraid sometimes we don't do enough of that today in teaching. Oh, that you know, is for sure. Yeah, <laughs> We need to be doing a lot more of that where we have, uh, the students have responsibilities for different things that they learn and, and participate. And they're yeah. participating where there's uh, peer teaching that goes on. And, mm-hmm. and we uh, have everybody dynamically involved in, in learning, right? The whole exactly. class, the whole class. And not 
not just the teachers. And uh, but it, as you said very well, it's so important to have these kids up there doing things and uh, group leaders uh, dec- decorating bulletin boards, doing uh, yeah. uh, culture days where they present and all exactly. these things. But where they're involved in this learning process and. Uh, and I don't know what it said, and you, you may disagree, but I don't think we do enough of that today in classrooms. And sometimes I think the books, again, we get worried about the content too much, right? Yeah. You know, well, for, when, student, when, when teachers see that you have to spend a solid month, in my opinion, instead of going through tons of review of last year's work, you'll fill in the gaps throughout the year when you find out what kids don't know or maybe should have known by the time they got to your level classroom. But what they don't know and they need to know is how you will run the class and show your fairness and your equity with how you treat kids. And that they have to understand in order to become a better speaker of the language or writer of the language. You got to speak and you got to write. You got to read and you got to listen. For teachers and, out there, I totally correct. And Louisa did this very, very well, but with her kids, if they, if you're going to have the kids speak and they're going to become fluent and have some proficiency in the language, they have to have the chance to speak a lot. And, uh, it takes a lot of practice to learn to be, to get to the fluent level, fluency level. And on the part of the students, and I always tell the teachers, you know, we gotta have to let the kids do this too. Louisa does the same thing, I know, and that is let the kids talk, and the teachers shouldn't need to practice very much, right? And uh, we, we need the kids to be practicing a lot, and uh, it's a tough thing you know, out there. And I think sometimes uh, if we get too dependent on textbooks and and this and that, and we don't, like you said, Louisa, focusing on these you know, the kids speak, speak, and do these activities that we're missing the boat. So uh, now tell us a little bit, tell the listeners about a couple of funny things that happened while you were teaching. <laughs> well, um, well, I'm gonna, one of the funny things, I'm actually going to bring back to the music because sometimes when music um, was part of the plan and um, the funny thing for me would be is when I be the one that was the most excited about singing or dancing or moving around the room and I couldn't get the kids to do what I wanted them to do. And I would tell them the first time you hear a new song, it's going to freak you out. You don't want to sing it. So I'll do it for you. So the students would laugh hysterically when they would see me going around the room, um, waving a, uh, a, a stick that I'm going to hit the pinata with if I'm singing Dale, 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 <laughs> or I'm going to be teaching them how to sing Las Mañanitas. So we're going to, you know, understand what those lines of the song stand for. We're going to uh. act it out. The kids just thought I was nuts. But at the same, same time, the more they saw me doing it, the more they took on the roles that I was doing. So just for me, putting humor into the music was super important. So they understand I'm not a great singer, but I don't mind singing if I have to, because I would then tell them how important music is because it it, it improves vowel sounds. It it improves the intonation as well as your volume. And the fact that a lot of the kids sing anyway, they do perform in choirs. They do perform for their friends when they're home and they're listening to their favorite music. So the building the courage for them to trust me and also being willing to be silly, they saw that I, oh, she's okay. She, she doesn't care if we laugh at her. I guess we can't get her on that either. Well, <laughs> so. and they saw you as a, a human being too, right? Yeah, exactly. A, a real exactly. person, and that's so important. Yeah, yeah beautiful. Yeah. Now, so, your favorite uh, students, who are your favorite students? 
Well, some of my favorite students, I have to tell you, were the first um, group of students that I got to know who were in my third and fourth year Spanish classes back in Monrovia. Um, there's a gal named Sherry Johnson, who's currently now a nurse, and um, she her family was from the south side of Indianapolis, even though she lived in Monrovia. But she went end up going to the University of Indianapolis and getting her degree, um, and she was just a... Uh, a beautiful student who worked so hard to master something she wasn't feeling comfortable about. And she just aced everything we did in our program. And she just, and she loved going to the Joe Mason day. Cause we still, that's what it was called back then and taking on the other um, uh, friends of hers that were in the class and really getting them excited. Jill Werner, who is a fellow Spanish teacher today doing amazing work with her own programs now also came out of that Monrovia high school group. And Jill took on all the plays and all the acting and all the creative things that we were doing in class. She took it to heart. And I never thought in a million years, Jill was going to become a Spanish teacher, but she ended up being my student teacher in 2000. So having her, um, as she was at Purdue, uh, getting her undergraduate degree, uh, she decided to make Spanish and education her thing. So she, she's tops. Um, and then I have two boys um, when I was uh, still teaching at, uh, at West Lane Middle School, um, Luke Henkel and Ethan Brown, and they both are current graduates of uh, North Central High School, but I also had them in the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade and in 10th grade in my honors class. But these two students uh, stood out for very different reasons, and they both went to Spain with me in 2015, and we did an EF Tours uh, travel, and these kids were just loving the experience of being in Madrid. And when I think about, uh, Luke was a master genius with repetition and sounds. He, his understanding of the grammar and being able to get insight in the literature, he was profound. And Ethan was just one of those kids that just loved everybody else, always kept an even keel for the class. He was a football player and, and he was so kind. And I had his older brother as well way, way before Ethan, but parents were super involved. And these, these were parents that also reminded you they were so thrilled to have um, their kids in my class. And so it's just working with these children. And my last student um, that I really wanted to mention, a, a gal named Blair, Blair Johnson is a junior now, and she just wrote um, some sweet things to me at the end of the school year when we were just going through the quarantine and hadn't seen each other all for 10 weeks and talked about one of the things she will always say what made my class stand out among all her other classes is that when she came into my classroom, she was going to have a new experience, not just another day of school. And she said the amount of language she was asked to produce and experience always made her remember that that language was something she was good. And she was a fantastic language student. But the, the fact that she called them new experiences that made her happy when she left the class. And she was a, a very, is a very, very intelligent person who takes every aspect of every activity seriously and always felt like she might fail. And she didn't want to fail. And she didn't want to see that. And I never knew she worried that way. I always saw her as the most confident person but being able to share their feelings and be so honest about it and also produce yeah. amazing work that, is incredible. That is very significant in what you said, and I like that because she liked the new experiences and she felt good about herself when she left class and she was happy. And that's another thing, teaching, that we always got to be aware of, right? And uh, to change, right? We have to change a lot. We can't. You do the same things over and over and over, but we have to be aware that we got to make changes, and uh, and 
The other reason probably why she was happy is because Louisa was happy teaching and Louisa <laughs> loved to teach. And that's another thing too, and I think Louisa would agree to this, the kids aren't going to be happy unless you're happy teaching. And you have to figure strategies to be happy every day and, and have fun. And it's about fun, right? If the teacher has fun, the students have fun, right? Yeah. Is that, would you agree to that, Louisa? I, I agree with that. And I think they have to know, yeah, the, the fun can't be emphasized enough, even in high school, because so much is being thrown at students. They have to regurgitate or just consume the info and then do something with it. And, and yes, there is an attitude of professionality that teacher wants to pass on to students so they can become professional one day. But there's so much going on in a high school's uh, student's life beyond things I could even imagine that were a part of my life as a high school student uh, 40 years ago. And to think about what students have to manage today, especially just with information technology on a day-to-day -day basis, they're happy when you're doing something that may not always be wrapped around technology, yes. but just about living and about so, being human. Right. Living. Now, you were very involved in the professional organizations. What uh, organizations did you enjoy the most or which which ones did you? Uh, well, the like? two that the two that um, I talked about in our uh, presentation back in July for uh, IFLTA is Indiana Foreign Language Teacher Association, and the subgroup, the group that brings IFLTA together, are the language groups. And so, the Indiana chapter of AATSP, the American Association of Teachers of Spanish and Portuguese. And actually, my first experience with that was with Antonio Otero, my high school Spanish um, teacher, because he gave me the Hispania journals and had me do research on the authors that I prepare for for the AP exam. So I said, where did this come from? And he had a beautifully showcased in an old, old bookshelf system with glass windows. And I could always remember the Hispanias lined up there and just thinking, this is like, you know, classic stuff. That's great. Like, this <laughs> and reading that I was like, oh my gosh, what, you know, <laughs> reading, you know, college text material written by professors and the experts around the country and the world, uh, the Spanish speaking world. I think okay I can do this I can do this you know so but when I when I started my teaching career in Monrovia in 1990 I had to align myself with the two associations that were going to support my growth as a teacher so without a doubt um, going and becoming a member and I've been a member since 1990 for IFLTA and Indiana chapter at ATSB and presenting at their conferences workshops and you know things we do around the year um, and putting on the conference with you in 1994 <laughs> for Infotide. Just, you know, those, those I think groups it, are, they're you, my glue. They're my glue. <laughs> I think you, you also helped a lot at the Central States Conference as well. Yes. And I, I think it was leader, 2000. I was, I was the year was 2000. <laughs> yes. I did whatever you told me to do. <laughs> yes, it was interesting work, wasn't it? Uh, oh, yeah. So, um, what motivation awards could you give to the future teachers? Something well, that, to, to really get them motivated to, to, okay. be, to, be, have, to be and become a great teacher, right? Sure. Well, it's not just about all what you know, because you're going to keep growing in your knowledge as you grow as an adult. But you better love kids before you become a teacher. You have to want to work with the most difficult kid as much as the most talented and intelligent person and frankly all students have some kind of intelligence that's waiting for you to find and tap into and I'll tell you some of my hardest years of teaching have been my last four years because I was teaching in a high school that had almost 3,000 students in it 
class sizes, easily 34, 35 kids in a group. The students who couldn't read well in English or didn't speak English as a first language and in my Spanish class. Students who had very, very, the smallest amount of learning strategies to survive and feel good about themselves. Those kids taught me the most. And so it was in those classrooms I had to realize too, we need to redefine even level one, level two language programs that meet the needs of kids who are not literate or don't know how to function with basic literacy skills. These are the kids that also think that the requirement of having to take a word language is a bunch of BS and they don't want to do it. And that type of learner is not what I was teaching back in 1990. And um, the kids today are going to challenge you to see how much do you know, but they won't want to know more how much do you care about them. So my, you know, my advice to anybody who's going to be a teacher, you will be more than just a teacher of the language. You're going to show them how to communicate as human beings and be better communicators um, when they leave your classroom and have some appreciation for why I made them go through all the hoops they had to go through so, to become a better person. So where do you see technology in all of this? Uh, of course, now in, in the world yeah. of COVID, that technology is, is huge uh, because without it, we wouldn't be doing much in the classroom. Um, right. So, uh, but I guess... My question is, uh, you were talking about communication. Yeah. Uh, do you see the time down the road when uh, the technology is going to intercede here with uh, inter, 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 uh, uh, inter, interject itself more and uh, become, become uh, part of that? Or do you uh, think that it's just... Um, uh, it's there and people will use it as needed uh, type yeah, thing. I, I think somewhere in between there. The technology, human touch, I guess that's what we're, I'm saying. Right. Where, yeah. Te technology is a tool. If it can advance the way kids can receive more input and, and be better interpreters, especially when it comes to uh, what they hear and um, what they are going to, you know, uh, read, that's great. Because the nice thing about technology, if I give the kids, and this is what I did when we were first going in quarantine in the uh, fourth quarter of last year, was I gave lots of video clips so they could get tons of input and they could listen and stop as much as they needed to. And they could also rewind and consider slide by slide what it was I was asking them to uh, reflect on and give me some comprehension and understanding. That's great, but it's also difficult. Technology, if it's not something you're using every single day in your personal life, it's kind of hard to integrate it into a teaching strategy if you're not comfortable with that. So it's not the teacher's fault if they're not using Zoom perfectly or Canvas perfectly because it hasn't been uh, presented en masse to all teachers in training. So what happens is we have this issue of will there be reliability in a Zoom meeting? And as my husband's already telling me in his first uh, two weeks of teaching, it's not reliable because it's all brand new and no one's ever thought they would be teaching kids in front of them right there in the classroom and also at home. Um, it requires a whole new set of etiquette for kids and how they're going to behave when they're on Zoom, uh, what's appropriate, and teachers will have to be very strict about it and not be loosey-goosey that might be when they're communicating with friends or their students and they shouldn't be on personal texting messages or, you know, or on and some of the other social media uh, ways of communicating. But for me, yes, technology is a great place because it can bring the world right into the kids' 
classroom or living room. And I think that's wonderful that we can now see the world in, a, in, in more manageable chunks because we can pick up stuff from all over the world and show that realia live for students um, or asynchronously. But I think technology should not be the way we save education. Human beings are going to save education and we're going to do it in every manner we can that touches on the largest uh, audience who's listening. And so when people are, are talking about their stress about coming back to school and they're worried about the health and the snap, these are temporary issues. It is teaching us some new lessons about how we care about our teachers and the amount of time teachers are training themselves right now. And I don't even think about my husband, who's not a big fan of all use of technology, but is training himself every single day after school how to make the next day better. So when he's reuniting with the kids who are in his face or not, and there's more of them at home now than they are in the classroom, um, he's doing his very best to still present who he is, letting them know he is the sage on the stage until time being occurs, and they'll have to accept that. And also know that you know if you want the very best of the language, get it from the teacher, and the resources the teacher's gonna share with you. This is a time for the kids to kind of regroup and understand, follow the leader for the moment. And then when things are working well, and we know all the routines and strategies for communicating in chat rooms or in Zoom meets or little class meets, those things will come into play. Right, now your future plans, what are your goals here for your future, the next year or two? There are quite, there's several, and um, about a year ago, and it'll be in September, is when I started thinking I needed to make some changes just for myself personally. Anybody who's going to take retirement when you're loving your career is wondering what the heck's going on. And um, I, I definitely, my goals are to be able to find the very best balance between my emotional, physical, and spiritual lives. And as a teacher, it was impacting all three of those aspects of what I think are most important for balancing one's living situation overall. When teaching becomes too stressful and you're worrying way too much about the management or you're responding too much to things from administration that have nothing to do with how to teach my classroom better, you will burn the best of us. We will seek out other things to do. And frankly, that's what where I was last year. I, I had some very difficult classes, um, students who truly, truly um, were misplaced. They weren't willing to change those placements. So I had to find brand new ways to work with these kids to try and help them pass my course. And that was never what I thought I would be doing in my last year as a teacher. Now, I also had incredible classes that were that was not the issue. So I could be more of the person I was comfortable with. But the kids who were struggling the most are the ones that taught me that we will have to figure out a way to get along and agree sometimes to disagree, and that happened a lot. And yes, those classes didn't hear as much Spanish, but I'd like to believe that they also learned they had a new appreciation for why taking Spanish with me was of value to them at some point in their school year. Um, but with all of that, I also felt like I've done my piece at the high school I was teaching in. I said everything I could possibly do, modeled it, modeled it, modeled it, and now it was time for people younger than myself to carry on. So I've left enough legacy to help them understand I'm not done as an educator, no way. But I also want to uh, explore more things within my parish life 
I want to be able to talk about myself fully as a human being. And when you're in a public school, you can't always do that. Um, but I also want people to understand that no matter where I go and whoever I'm uh, working with, I will educate. And that's how I tend to see the world is an opportunity to educate in places there where there's a lack of information and lack of uh, understanding of diversity and why we have to be understanding. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. You're thoughts were wonderful and we appreciate you taking the time to be in the show and to share with us your beautiful career and uh, we certainly wish you the best of luck in the future and uh, as long as you're out there educating I think we're, it would be a great world and a better world so thank you for all of that and uh, we uh, uh, say hello to your husband Tony who's one of my dear friends, and uh, as is Louisa. And uh, uh, we go back a long way uh, in, in, in our careers, all of us, including my wife, Jill. And uh, so it, it was great having you on the show, and uh, I'm sure every the listeners are going to profit immensely by your ideas. And uh, in the meantime, uh, everybody else, the listeners, thank you for being with us. And I hope that you guys have a great day and stay safe from COVID and also that you join us in a couple of weeks for another uh, neat show here on the Tom's World Language Cafe. And I believe we're coming on 10 years now, maybe more than that, of our show. So uh, we've had a lot of great uh, people on the show and uh, thank you um, people out there for listening and tell your friends about the show as well. Okay, uh, thank you, Luisa. Have a great day. Hablaremos más tarde, okay? De acuerdo.